Chapter 6 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Chapter 6. Mark Saber's Text. 1. Mark Saber wanted something. He could not tell anybody what it was that he wanted, for he did not know. He only knew that he carried in his heart a ceaseless hunger, an indescribable craving, an aching void. It is Mr. A. S. M. Hutchinson who, in If Winter Comes, tells his story. And that is how Mr. Hutchinson summarizes his hero's spiritual destitution. And in so summarizing it, he displays a penetrating and practical insight. Here and there, as we go through life, we meet with a man who groans beneath a load of guilt. He feels, like Bunyan's pilgrim, that his burden is heavier than he can bear, and he longs for deliverance. He wants to get rid of something. But for each such case we meet with a dozen who are vaguely conscious that life is lacking. They are ashamed of their inner poverty. They think wistfully of the treasure in which others exult. They grope blindly, but eagerly, for that for which they would gladly sacrifice every penny they possess. They feel that they need something. So it was with Mark Saber. We are all plugging about like mad because we are all looking for something, he said to himself one morning as he leaned back in his office chair and yielded himself to his reflections. We are all looking for something. You can read it in half of the faces you see some wanting and knowing they are wanting something others wanting something but just putting up with it content to be discontented you can see it and what is it that they are all looking for it's some universal thing that's wanting something that religion ought to give but doesn't here then is the problem or rather here are the two problems the first is browning's problem wanting is what summer redundant Blueness abundant. Where is the blood? Mark Saber feels that, for lack of that mysterious something, whatever that something may be, life has become confused, involved, tangled, out of control. There are three women in this story, Mabel, Nona, and Effie. He is married to Mabel. They have nothing in common. They do not seriously attempt to understand each other. No love is lost between them. He is wholeheartedly in love with Nona, and she with him. But Nona is the wife of Lord Tybar. Mark is determined that, come what may, his love for Nona shall never degrade or dishonor her. If he cannot help her upward, he will never drag her downward. He is resolved to play the game, but the struggle is terrific, and he feels that if only that elusive and mysterious something had come into his life at the start, this hideous complication would have been averted. Life would have been under the sway of a master principle. Even now, if he could but welcome that something into his heart, he might be saved from shipwreck. He throws himself back in his chair and reviews the situation. Wanting is what? And that is the first problem. And when he has discovered what he needs, whence shall he obtain it? That is the second. Two. Mark Sabers thought that he basied something in two directions, but he found abiding satisfaction in neither. It occurred to him that friendship is one of the purest joys of life. 
He noticed that the hungry look that he saw in people's eyes vanished when they opened their hearts in confident, congenial communion with each other. It was so in his own case. How very glad his friends were to see him. It was as though he brought them something, something very pleasurable to them, and that they much wanted. Certainly he, for his own part, received such from them, a sense of warmth, a kindling of the spirit, a glowing of all his affections and perceptions. His mind would explore curiously this train of thought. He came to determine that infinitely the most beautiful thing in life was a face lightening up with a pleasure friendship. He remembered that wanting something look in the faces of half the people he saw, and he fancied that by the rapture of friendship even the weariest and most wistful faces were transfigured. This was a hint, but only a hint. It did not carry him far. On reflection, he felt that it was not entirely the secret. The friendly greeting passed, the light faded from the face, the wanting returned. The thing lacking was something that would fix it, render it permanent, establish it in the being as the heart is rooted in the body. Something? What? This leads him to his second venture. He wonders if it is faith that he requires. Why is it, he asks himself, that children's faces are always happy? There's something they must lose as they grow out of childhood. It's not that cares and troubles come. It is that something is lost. Well, what had I as a child that I have not as a man? Would it be hope? Would it be faith? Would it be belief? Or are these three the same? It sets him thinking. He turns to the churches, but somehow the churches fail to satisfy him. He takes his friend Hapgood into his confidence. I tell you, Hapgood, he says, that plumb down in the crypt and abyss of every man's soul is a hunger, a craving for other food than any earthly stuff. And the church knows it, but instead of reaching down to him what he wants, light, light, instead of that, they invite him to dancing and picture shows, and you're a jolly good fellow, and religion's a jolly fine thing and no spoil sport, and all that sort of latter-day tendency. Why, man, he can get all that outside the churches and get it better. Light, light, he wants light, Hapgood. And the padres come down and drink beer with him and dance jazz with him and call it making religion a living thing in the lives of the people. Lift the hearts of the people of God, they say, by showing them that religion is not incompatible with having a jolly fine time. And there's no God there that a man can understand for him to be lifted to. Hapgood, a man wouldn't care what he had to give up if he knew he was making for something inestimably precious. But he doesn't know. Light, light, that's what he wants. And the longer it's withheld, the lower he sinks. Light, light. And so society fails him. And the churches fail him. And all the while the hunger of his heart for that mysterious something, the something that he feels he lacks, is growing. And all the while the struggle becomes more fierce and terrible. Everything goes wrong at the office. Everything goes wrong at home. The sympathies of life weaken. The temptations of life strengthen. And still he is without that something that would transform a nebulous chaos into an orderly creation. 3. The great discovery, as he called it, broke suddenly upon him. The first hint of it came from Effie. Effie was a simple-hearted girl for whom he had obtained a situation as companion to an old lady whose son had gone to the war. 
Effie, Mr. Hutchinson tells us, was always happy. Nothing of that wanting something look was ever to be seen in Effie's shining eyes. She had the secret of life. Watching her face while they talked, Saber came to believe that the secret, the thing missing in half the faces he saw, was love. But the old difficulty, many had loved and yet were troubled. One evening he asked Effie a most extraordinary question, shot out of him without intending it, discharged out of his questioning thoughts as by a hidden spring suddenly touched by groping fingers. Effie, do you love God? Why, of course I do, Mr. Saber, Effie answered in surprise. Why do you? She was utterly at a loss. Of course I do, she said again. Yes, he replied rather sharply, but why? Have you ever asked yourself why? Respecting, fearing, trusting, that's understandable. But love, you know what love is, don't you? What's love got to do with God? In simple wonderment, as though she had been asked what had the sun to do with light or whether water was wet, she answered, why, God is love. He stared at her. It was the first ray of clear sunshine that had broken upon him, and it startled him. The gray dawn soon ripened into golden daylight. In the crisis of his career, when an avalanche of tragedies was overwhelming him, he again opened his heart to Hapgood. Hapgood, he exclaimed, his face flushed with excitement. I've got the secret. I've got the key to the riddle that's been puzzling me all my life. I've got the new revelation in terms good enough for me to understand. I've got the light. Here it is. God is love. Not this, that, nor the other that the intelligence revolts at and puts aside and goes away and goes on hungering, hungering and unsatisfied. Nothing like that. But just this. Plain for a child. Clear as daylight for grown intelligence. God is love. Listen to this, Hapgood. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. For God is love. Isn't that a revelation? It explains everything to me. I can reduce all the mysteries to terms of that. Aunt Hapgood tells us that through all the desperate days that followed, days of blackness impenetrable and anguish unutterable, Saber held on to that. He'd got this great discovery of his, badly down as he was, at least he'd got that. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him, for God is love. That is Mark Saber's text. 4. I am not surprised. It is an exquisite phrase. He that dwelleth in love, that builds his nest in love, that makes his home in love. Let me call a pair of witnesses. Samuel Rutherford and Dr. Jowett. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. Oh, sir, exclaimed Samuel Rutherford, writing to Colonel Kerr in 1653. Oh, sir, what a house that must be. What is it to dwell in love, to live in God? How far are some from this, their house and home? How ill acquaint with the rooms, mansions, safety and sweetness of holy security to be found in God. When shall we attain in living in him only, dwelling in love, residing in God? He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. What a home! exclaims Dr. J. H. Jowett. This home of the soul surpasses anything and everything for its loveliness and grace. Dwelleth in love, dwelleth in God. There is nothing in nature which will provide an analogy gracious enough to carry the treasure. The soul which dwells in love radiates love, 
It looks out of its windows and has a feast of loveliness. It has a wonderful magic, and even deformed things begin to be transformed. If you would understand this magic and experience, change your address and take up your home in love. For he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, for God is love. The whole point of Mr. Hutchinson's book is that Mark Saber actually entered into this celestial experience. He took up his residence in the love of God and caught the atmosphere of that divine dwelling place. 5. I have said that everything went wrong with Saber at the office and at home. Calamity followed hard upon the heels of calamity. Tragedy after tragedy came thundering down upon him. Somebody had committed a great and terrible sin. Somebody had driven poor Effie to a dreadful crime. Who was that somebody? With cruel unanimity, all the circumstances pointed to Saber as the culprit. And on the strength of that avalanche of evidence, Mabel had no difficulty in divorcing him. At the office, there was a man whose heart extended its hospitality to a pitiless hate and a passionate love. It is wonderful how often those two opposites dwell together. Twining, a partner in the firm, hated Saber with a hate that was as cruel as death. And he loved his own boy, Harold Twining, with an affection that was almost idolatry. Harold enlisted and went to the war. Whilst he was away in France, his father, not knowing that Saber had offered for service and been rejected, kept up a running fire of biting sarcasms and sneering insinuations. And mixing his love with his hate, he would mutter to himself in between whiles, "'My Harold! My Harold! Nobody knows what Harold is to me! He's all the world to me, my boy! My boy! He's a better man than his father, a far better man! He's a good Christian, is Harold!' He's never had a bad thought or said a bad word. My Harold, my Harold. 6. Then comes the sensation that forms the climax of the book. In the back of the clock, a place in which Effie used often to secrete things, Saber finds a letter. It is addressed to him and establishes his innocence completely. The guilty somebody was Harold Twining. Harold was the father of Effie's child. The evidence in the divorce case was a tissue of false assumptions. It was Harold who had driven poor Effie to the murder of her babe and to suicide. Saber reads the letter again and again. He thinks of the stinging sarcasms to which he has been exposed at the office. He rises and mimics twining. Harold's such a good boy, never said a bad word or had a bad thought. Such a good Christian model boy. He determines to rush off to the office and show the letter to twining at once. He's hounded me to hell, he says. At the very gates of hell, I've got him. I'll cram the letter down his throat. His enemy, he feels, has been delivered into his hands. He bursts into the office. Twining sits at his desk, his head buried in his hands. At his elbows, vivid upon the black expanse of the table, lies a torn envelope, dull red. Twining, he begins, I've come to speak to you about your son. Oh, Saber, so you've heard. It was good of you to come, Saber. I feel it. He's killed. My Harold, my boy, my boy Harold. Oh, Saber, such a good Christian boy, and he's gone. He's gone, never to see him again, never again. He began to sob. His head fell once more upon his hands, and Saber strolled across to the fireplace. He was crumpling the letter in his hands. Stooping down, he held it over the flames, the letter that 
of all things alone declared his innocence. With that letter, he could look the whole world in the face and hurl his worst enemies to confusion. Without that letter, he stood convicted and condemned in the sight of all men. He remembered his text. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him, for God is love. He opened his fingers, Mr. Hutchinson says, and the crumpled letter was consumed. He went over and patted Twining's heaving shoulders. There, there, Twining, bear up, bear up, soldier's death, fine boy, died for his country. Bad luck, Twining. Twining clutched his hand and squeezed it convulsively. They parted, and Sabre went out to face the scowls of society. Meanwhile, Nona, too, had been chastened by suffering and purified by trial. Her husband, whom she had come wholeheartedly to admire, had won the Victoria Cross and fallen at the front. When all the world turned its back upon Mark Sabre, she believed in him. She came to him at last, and together they entered into a felicity that they could never have known but for the temptations that they had resisted and the sufferings they had endured. 7. Mark Saber is not a perfect character. He is tactless, stupid, awkward. He has a genius for blundering. But once he comes within the ambit of the love of God, his personality is irradiated and transfigured. Love. God. The love of God. God is love. Did not the love of God reach its climax when he, the just, died for us, the unjust, he who knew no sin became the Lamb of God, bearing away the sins of the world. The innocent suffered for the guilty. So it was with Mark Saber. When Saber made his home in the love of God, he became infected by the sacrificial spirit and fragrant atmosphere of that sublime abode. End of chapter 6